everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Book Chat. I have another fantastic author for you guys to meet today, and we are going to be talking about his work and his book and anything else that comes up in casual conversation. So let me bring in Arthur. Hi. So Arthur, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing journey. Well, I think um, I was a teacher for a long period of time. I was a head of school for a long period of time. But even when I was a kid, I was interested in these kinds of spiritual topics. I think the um, the beginning was watching uh, Jeffrey Hunter and King of Kings. I think it was all of maybe 10 or 11 years old. And then Jeffrey Hunter went on to be resurrected as uh, Christopher Pike in the pilot for Star Trek. And then I also got hooked on this TV show, Kung Fu, which some of your listeners may remember from David Carradine played this um, Chinese monk who was basically in exile in the Wild West. And I just, I don't know what it is, but it really lit some kind of a fire of curiosity or whatever. And I started thinking seriously about those kinds of questions even since then. So the book came about once I was retired to be able to reflect on the process by which I tried to come to my own beliefs. And, you know, there are a lot of spiritual books out there and they all tell you what to do and all you have to do is follow them and you'll know you'll achieve enlightenment or nirvana or redemption or whatever you want to call it. And I really believe, especially the teacher in me really believes that it's not for anybody to tell anybody what to believe or to do, but to lay out the information, come, allow people to come to their own conclusions. If they have questions, you can try to answer them. But as the Buddha said, we all have a responsibility, be ye lamps unto yourselves. And in Christianity, Martin Luther says basically exactly the same thing, that everybody has an obligation to read the Bible for themselves and to come to their own conclusions. So that's how I got to, to here. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit is working. It's, it's magic. And that's why I'm on this program. Nice. And for everybody listening, we're talking about his book, A Theology for the Rest of Us, right? Correct. So when did you begin to write this book? Well, like I said, I probably began to write it when I was 10 years old because I started having those kinds of questions. Uh, but formally, I, wrote, I started writing a couple of years ago. And um, I always liked to write. So that, that part of it was easy. But being a teacher and a head of school, I would have people ask me different kinds of questions. And frankly, they would ask me questions that they were embarrassed to ask whoever was, you know, the leader of their congregation, whatever it was, because they had doubts and they didn't want to look dumb and they didn't want to look ignorant. And they certainly didn't want to look like they lacked faith because that's something that very few congregations would tolerate. Mm -hmm. um, so I basically would answer those questions and I realized, you know, they're not the only ones and I'm not the only one. And I think society in general frowns on people thinking for themselves. So as much as everybody says, I want to be unique, I want to be unique, I want to be different, I want to be my own person, etc. For the most people, I want to be unique just so long as everybody likes me and agrees with me. So the, the thrust of the book is to basically give people permission to investigate things on their own terms, come to their own conclusions, and that it's really okay. And if you do that, you find you may lose people who used to be friends or used to share views, 
but you will also find kindred spirits out there who will be supportive and helpful and cooperative. And uh, at the end of the day, you'll be more you, more authentically you, and that's a good thing. That is good. I like how you have portrayed that in your work because that growing up, asking uncomfortable questions like that, things that we didn't know that a lot of us felt like we should know. Right. Those were hard to go up and ask people for. And I, I, growing up in Oklahoma, it's part of the Bible Belt. Like I remember feeling that myself in like during church services when I was younger. So um, that's actually kind of cool that you had to address that with this book. So how did you get past that? Um, I can't imagine the chapter God has stayed in that <laughs> position, afraid to ask questions. I was actually really shy as a no. younger kid. Um, I was one of those kids. I didn't like to read aloud or talk aloud or like bring any attention to myself. I actually had my sixth grade teacher put me in front of the classroom and stand at the back because my mom was also a teacher and she saw mm-hmm. me in school. She was like, okay, I want you to yell at me. Like you yell at your little brother and sister. Like, no. <laughs> so, and I guess after like coming out of my shell with that, it kind of made it easier to ask. So, and I really do- dove into like, I guess researching for myself and looking for those answers myself. It's different when it like clicks on in your brain to start looking for stuff. Versus just like going with what exactly you're told. So, Well, the Hindus would say that which you are seeking is causing you to seek. There's some part of you that's connected. I mean, I don't know if it sounds pretentious, but there's some part of you, all of us, that's connected mm-hmm. with this divine that, you know, permeates the universe. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's attracted to you. And, you know, whatever inhibitions we have, whatever potentially embarrassing thoughts we may have, we have a choice to either give in to them or pursue the, pursue what we are thinking about and considering, and that makes all the difference. Yeah. And something I want to bring up, too, you um, mentioned in the document you filled out is uh, listening to your inner voice and resisting temptations to conform to accepted standards. What kind of did you mean by that? Let's kind of like dive into that. Well, like I say, every first off, there, there are lots of pressures to conform. Uh, ba- babies who don't conform die. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really that simple. So they have to. There's a reason why babies are cute and smile, because yeah. you know, evolution people will tell you, you know, otherwise they they don't survive. So the, this is all part of the DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't have claws, not particularly strong or anything like that. So people who are on their own die. You know, it's it's really that basic and biologically simple. So how do people survive? How do people thrive? They survive and thrive by making uh, social connections. They develop communities. So one guy up against a mastodon is not going to make it. But you get a group of people up against a mastodon, then they have a chance. And basically all of history is the detailing of all these societies getting together and uh, overcoming obstacles and becoming effective societies. With that as the psychological and evolutionary background, the pressure against being an individual is enormous. I mean, there's all kinds of pressure to fit in. I mean, I taught for years and years and there's nothing like giving teenagers permission to be themselves. Probably one of the best 
kinds of conversations I would have is how teens would twist themselves into all kinds of contortions in order to please everybody else. And I would ask them, so what are you afraid of? They said, well, they're not going to like me and they're going to hurt me and they're going to do this and that. They said, well, just understand that by doing all this stuff, you are doing to yourself what you are afraid other people are going to do to you. And is that worth it to you? So, you know, that's the kind of pressure we're, we're all under. At the same time, there is a part of us, and you had that experience yourself, and just about everybody has it. You know, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, which is a great name to drop at a cocktail party or something like that. It sounds really cool. But yeah. Soren Kierkegaard would talk about this feeling, and he calls it a fear and trembling. And St. John of the Cross will call it the dark night of the soul. And all these different people will have different um, expressions for it. And some people will do whatever they can to quash it. You know, they'll become workaholics or alcoholics or sexaholics or whatever it is. They'll do whatever it is to squash it because it's threatening their sense of identity. It's threatening their sense of conformity. And ultimately, it could be perceived as a threat to their survival. So to be in a congregation where in a town where you grew up and all your friends believe X and your parents have told you X and, you know, et cetera, and to start thinking why, uh, that's tough. On the other hand, it's tough not to because you're denying, people are denying a key part of themselves and that's always painful. And never, yeah. always a losing game. Gosh, yeah. So when did the inspiration hit you to put everything you've learned regarding this down into a book? Like, what was that like? Was it like an epiphany or an eye, like a light bulb going off in your head? Like, I need to put this down? No, I, th I think it started... The actual process of the writing, even though these kinds of ideas had been circulating for a long time, I think the actual writing started with the pandemic. Because I think, again, the pandemic brought a sense of insecurity. Now, insecurity is usually seen as, as a negative thing. I'm scared, I'm frightened, I don't know what to do, I'm confused, etc., etc. But insecurity can also be a means to exploration, you know, you're insecure, you have to find ways of feeling more secure. So people would express questions that were unsettling to them um, and needed a safe environment to do so. And once the pandemic hit, people had to confront different kinds of fears separate from everybody else because of the lockdowns, etc. the social interaction that people had depended upon was no longer as powerful as it had been before. Now, I, I, no doubt about it. Some people would say, Arthur, you're narcissistic and you're an old child and a male on top of that, all that kind of stuff. But I'm not so narcissistic to say that the whole divine power in the universe orchestrated this pandemic just to get me to write this book. Having said that, once you tap into the senses of insecurity, Mm -hmm. and people expressing themselves, then there's, a, you know, it's, it's kind of like anybody who creates anything, painting, songs, 
dance, whatever it is, nobody really knows where that inspiration comes from because they, if they did, they'd identify it, bottle it, and make a ton of money on it because it just doesn't work that way. You just start. You just start doing things. And Taoism, the phrase is, you know, the longest journey starts with a single step. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, a word that's used in the West a lot is lost. I, you know, I'm lost. I need to find myself. You know, all those kinds of phrases. And I think this psychology needs to change to where you're not lost, but you are at a particular place at a particular time, and you need to identify a direction. So... Okay, so I, I basically just started writing. One idea led to the other. I just kept writing. I used to teach, you know, formal essay writing in classes way back when. And, uh, you know, <laughs> my students will laugh. They'll say, well, you're following the same model you taught us. And I said, yeah, well, <laughs> that's all I know. <laughs> so that's how it comes out that way. And then you know, as silly as it sounds, like, you know, so I write this book and it's not a long book. I mean, it's scary. It's scary for me that the original manuscript was like 50 pages and I'm, you know, 69. It was scary to think I've been thinking about this my entire life. It came out to less than one page a year. So there's not a whole lot of learning there, but I, you know, I, I said, okay, so how do you publish books? So I went to Google like everybody does and I find a list of publishers of religious books. And the first one, MSI Press, responds positively. I said, well, this is a breeze. You know, people say this stuff, you know, publishing is hard. This was the very first one I found. It was the top of the list on Google. So I kept sending them out. Well, this one went out of business. This one didn't care. This one said it wasn't Christian enough. This one said it was too general and blah, blah, blah. So the universe had this way, you know, Arthur, (laughs) you thought this was going to be a breeze. Be grateful that you found one because you only need one. And sure enough, that's that's exactly how it happened. You know, so I worked through and and even that was kind of weird because in the book, I make some references to Russian literature, in particular, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, another name to drop at a cocktail party. And the (laughs) publisher, Betty Lever at MSI Press She's a graduate like of, of Moscow University and had all this interest in Russian literature and things like that. And she says anybody who can mention somebody like Dostoevsky now, you know, as opposed to in, like in the 1800s, there's, there's got to be something worthwhile there. So, it was, you know, it was like kismet. You know, you, you make these connections. And I got to tell you, as as. As, as weird as it sounds, and, and trust me, I am not a kumbaya mystical person. <laughs> you know, I research everything and I make my little spreadsheets and pros and cons and all this kind of stuff. Nevertheless, I really have come to believe that you have an idea, you have uh, something you want to find out about. You have some kind of um, inkling and you pursue it all of a sudden stuff starts to happen in the universe that trigger that allows you to fulfill it for somebody as risk averse as me to be able to spend two years in Singapore. I mean, there's just no way, simply no way. I was at the end of my career and I'm thinking of retiring. And what am I going to do? Et cetera. I get this call from somebody I had worked with 40 years ago in Chicago He's, you know, he's got this program in Singapore. He knows I'm about to retire. What do you say? 
I could easily imagine God up in heaven going, well, you know how Arthur, this guy, Yavelberg, is so interested in Eastern religions. There's no way he's going to go out there on his own. It's got to be safe. It's got to be easy. You know, all these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got to be in English. I had never even heard of Singapore before. I thought Singapore and Shanghai and Hong Kong was all the same place, just different languages. And Singapore is amazing. Everything is beautiful. It's clean. It's in English. Um, And it's a gateway to all of Asia. Anything you want to see, it's like Asia-like. Anything you want to see in Singapore, anything you want to see, China, Japan, Australia, anything you find in, in miniature form in Singapore. And if you want to go see the real thing, like I was able to go to Cambodia to, to see Angkor Wat, where uh, people, the fans of Laura Croft will remember where, where she yes. was first of the Tomb Raider movies. I mean, it's amazing. And I look back at that, and I can look back at any number of other things and say, yeah, logically, plausibly, that should never have happened. And I believe everybody can look back on their lives and look at those things and say, yeah, that logically that never should have happened. I couldn't have predicted this five years ago. Yeah. But I, I bet you're glad you went there because that sounds oh, amazing. Like it sounds very pretty. And I love to investigate different cultures myself. And that's on my bucket list is to travel more and I'm slowly getting there, but yeah. It's kind of a crazy world we live in now. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you have to you know, look you, like everything. You have to weigh the risks and all the rest of it. But, you know, the perspective I always use when people would say stuff like you just said, I, you know, some opportunity comes up and you're deciding whether or not to do that. As morbid as it sounds, you know, I want you to picture yourself on your deathbed and you're looking back at this moment and are you going to be happy or sad with whatever choice you made? Um, you know, and once you look at it that way, you realize not only that um, you have the ability to make choices you might not have considered, but you don't have forever. Yeah. You have an X number of options that will come our way. And um, yeah, when that's it, that's it. And it's actually kind of difficult to get your mind to switch to thinking like that because I've tried to like, especially since the pandemic happened, like shift to thinking like, oh, like if I want to go do something, probably need to figure out how to do that. Like if I'm going to travel the world, try to figure out how to do that within a budget and reasonable time. Because if you can't, if you keep putting it off, oh, I'll go then, I'll go then, you may never go. So Well, the reservation you're feeling goes back to what I was saying earlier about survival. People who are cautious, people who are uh, investigating potential risks and that kind of thing, they have a better survival rate because they're they're not taking risks. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the goal is not simply to survive. The goal is to live a, a life that is satisfying and has the opportunity to be authentically who we are. Um, you know, it's not just about endurance. Mm-hmm. We, we, we could live till 90 and stay in our closets and, you know, never venture out. Yeah. We could make it to 90. Yeah, so what? Yeah, it's not worth it if you haven't lived a little. So. Correct. 
Which I mean, there's within good means, like living yeah. down. <laughs> well, yes, you know, it, it, you know, it is, and it, it, it's naive of people to think there is no risk. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is, don't expect to venture out on your own and come up with your own ideas and your own practices that are different from those of your friends and neighbors and family and have everybody all of a sudden bow in awe and say, oh my God, what a wonderful thing you've just learned. You know, it's gonna yield in many cases, a lot of resentment and all that kind of thing because by you exploring on your own, other people are gonna find it threatening because that means they have to challenge what they believe and they don't wanna do that. So yeah, it's a risk. You can, here's another implausibility. I'm gonna to go to Egypt in a month. I got this thing in the mail. Things are half price because of the pandemic and all this kind of stuff. So I'm thinking to myself, practicing what I preach, there's a part of me that says, how are you going to go to Egypt? You know, who knows what kind of pavements they have in terms of walking and this and that. But, Arthur, you're on your deathbed. You're looking back on this moment. Are you going to wish that you had taken the chance? Now, I can go there, and who knows what's going to happen. I could get sick. I could do this. I could do that. But in a very rational cost-benefit analysis, the odds are in my favor. Yeah. And you know what? And if something horrible happens, you know, and who knows, um, I'm still going to be able to say, yeah, I, I gave it my best shot. You know, Nietzsche is this German philosopher of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And basically, his answer to just about everything is, um, did you tell the truth? More important, did you tell your truth? Because to the extent that you didn't, you're already dead. You know, you're already dead. Uh, Shakespeare has this line, um, a, her- uh, a, uh, a hero dies, no, cowards die a thousand deaths, the hero mm-hmm. dies but once. It's absolutely true, right? It's absolutely true. You live your truth. You do what you feel like you need to do. And if the bottom falls out, the bottom falls out, but you gave it your best shot, as opposed to always playing it safe and, you know, always getting a C plus. Yeah, so what? Yeah. So when you finished this book, did you find yourself eager to write like another book? Um, no, like I said, it took me. <laughs> I was able to put out less than one page a year, and I'm not living till 134. So it's not happening. <laughs> um, but I think part of it also has to do with what the feedback is to this book. You know, if, yeah. if, if people, you know, read it, Again, you know, again, practicing what I preach. If people pick up the book or publishers pick up the book and they say, you know what, this is nonsense and this doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. You know, I gave it my best shot and doesn't work. It didn't work. On the other hand, if people pick up the book and find it helpful. And one of the nicest comments I've heard in context with the book is that it's not preachy. It doesn't tell people what to believe. And it makes these uh, ideas that are kind of complicated and sophisticated, um, comprehensible, accessible. So if people have other questions that they want, you know, direction with, yeah, who knows? I mean, I, I don't close any doors, but for right now, I'm, I'm, I'm finding satisfaction in, in getting the responses I've gotten and the kinds of questions where people feel safe to, you know, speak their minds and disagree or agree and, and, and whatever. Whereas before, 
I think those people just uh, basically stayed quiet and uh, numbed themselves to the kinds of questions that they had. Hmm. During the story, did you reflect or share on any personal experiences? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, the Singapore one was a, a, a big one, but the um, the uh, other thing, you know, like, so I was in high school. How did I start my, uh, I grew up, uh, my parents were both Jewish, but neither one was religious, formally religiously interested. My father was a devout atheist mm-hmm. and had no use for anything like that. My mother was from Mexico and she it was very super, basically very superstitious. Uh, you know, any, um, I don't know that she would think in terms of theology, but if there was some amulet or ring that was said to be, bring good luck, she was all over it and would have 16 of those and that kind of thing. Uh, but, and this is, <laughs> this is going to sound common. I met this girl in high school and um, she was interested in Bible studies and some Bible class. Well, I didn't know anything. Yeah. But I was interested in her. So all of a sudden I was interested in Bible class. So I went with her to this a Bible class. And I remember the teacher was talking about the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And they weren't supposed to eat of the fruit of this tree. And they did. And because of that, they were cast out of the garden. So I'm listening to this. And I said, wait a minute. If you're if a parent, um, if a kid burns his hand on a stove that's lit, it's not the kid's fault. It's the parent's fault. So if God didn't want him to eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge and the stakes were so high, what's he doing planting a tree like that right in the middle of the garden where they can see it just about every day? So this teacher looks at me and looks at the girl and says, where did you dig him up from? (laughs) um, But... You know, again, one thing led to another. And I met this person uh, who was a teacher whose wife uh, contacted the seminary. I, I, you know, I had a job at the time. Uh, I, I was going to pursue, I, you know, I took a civil service job with the Social Security Administration. And I could speak Spanish. My mother was Mexican, so my Spanish was good. And in Florida, you can imagine, being able to speak Spanish is a, is a big advantage. That would have been very safe. I could have stayed there. You know, my mother was happy. People were happy. Um, put in my 20 years, retire, you know, typical story. And nothing would have happened. But there was a part of me that said, yeah, you, you don't want to do that. You have, you have a chance here to do something different that could be really satisfying. And I got to tell you, so this was back in the 70s. Uh, I get on a plane for New York and I'm going to go to Columbia and the seminary. I get off the uh, plane, I get a cab, I'm going to go to the seminary. Well, New York was a pit in the 70s. I mean, an absolute pit. Um, a-, a beam was like mayor and crime was rampant. Times Square was a jungle. I mean, it was terrible. So I'm going in the cab from LaGuardia Airport up to the, you know, uh, Washington Heights, I think it's called, uh, like 122nd Street and Broadway. And I'm passing graffiti and iron bars on windows. I mean, it looks like I got off the plane in Beirut or something like that. 
And it was scary. And there's a, so we get off, I get off the cab and there's bars on the door. And the security guard comes out. And I'm thinking, boy, did I make a doozy of a mistake. I, should, I didn't even buy a round-trip ticket. So, and yet, you know, that was the first step in this whole transition where I wound up becoming a, a teacher and then I had a school and mm -hmm. all that stuff that came afterwards. Whereas there was a big part of me that said, get back in the cab, turn around and figure out how to get your rear end back to, to Miami where you had this nice safe social security job. You know, I didn't. But I could have, and my guess is a number of people in that kind of situation would have. And yet, you know, I, I look back now and I'm glad I made the choice. But at the time, it wasn't such an easy choice. Yeah, those are never easy choices. I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, how many times have I had that same thought in life? And I'm like, okay, wait, we're fixing to do something big. Like if I'm questioning it this much, some, this, something is coming out of this. So it's percolating. Yes. I take a deep breath and just keep moving forward. So. Absolutely. And you have to overcome that upbringing and social context mm -hmm. that you have to rationally look at that stuff and say, yeah, I get it. This is where my fear is coming from. This is where my insecurity is. And I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And it is scary putting yourself out there, but you got to, that's, you make a difference when you do. You make a difference to everybody else and, and you. You know, um, what's his name? I can, I can see him. There's this great statement, you know, be yourself. Everybody else is taken. You know, you, you have this. Everybody has this unique ability and contribution to make. And to the degree we squash it in order to conform to everybody else, we not only deny ourselves, but we also deny everybody else the opportunity to benefit from what we have to offer. So, you know, it's win-win when we tell our truth, it's lose-lose when we don't. Yeah. Well, Arthur, we have reached the end of our time. So go ahead and tell our listeners and viewers where they can find your wonderful book. Uh, well, um, yeah, it, 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 so there's amazon.com. I also have a, I now have a website now. Yeah. Uh, it's very uh, creative and original. It's, it's ArthurYavelberg.com. <laughs> it's, it's apparently that's how this stuff is supposed to work. Um, <laughs> but it, it's available through Amazon. It's available for, through MSI Press. Um, there are links on the website, too. Uh, I have a Facebook group. Um, people are free to join. One of the nicest things that's come out of this whole experience is people I never would have met beforehand. Uh, contacting me and changing views and this and that. And, that, and that's been uh, 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 very gratifying and feeling like I've made a, uh, some kind of a difference in people's lives, which is great. Well, thank you again. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. I, I, I wish you luck and um, I hope to um, follow your program and see more of what you have to offer it, it, to all of your viewers. Awesome.